we're going to continue the series I started two weeks ago. The series is called Moments Into Motion, which if you were here, makes total sense. You could probably explain it. If you weren't, seems just like a cliche with two M words with a little, you know, conjunction in the middle. Um, I'll explain that more in a moment. But what we're really talking about throughout this series is the one thing I'm praying over this congregation this year. Because I leveled with you. I said, I am very honest with God about the challenge I have, both professionally and spiritually, in the job that, that he's called me to do. And I feel like my primary responsibility in my job as a lead pastor is to disciple and to equip you to do everything that God's made you and called you to be. It's not just my own idea. The Bible tells me that. My job is to equip you to do the work God's called you to do. In other words, you pay me to get you to go to work. It's kind of how this all works, right? So um, that part of, a big part of that is teaching. And a big part of that is, is communicating to you. And we were looking over the, the, you know, the challenge, not just that Echo has, but lots of churches in America have, is that more people are coming to church less frequently than ever before. And most churches, the average attender attends less than two times a month. So, you know, I'm asking God, okay, I get maybe 30 to 45 minutes of time to teach you once a week. Of that 30 to 45 minutes, the scientists say that the best of you are concentrating one out of every three minutes. And that's if I'm really good, which, you know, we're on the fence about that. Uh, (laughs) But what we realize is, so I've got like 15 minutes, maybe, of your good attention on a Sunday. And I might see you, at most, some of you, I might see you two times a month. Now, I realize some of you are really amazing Christians, and you are here five times out of every four Sundays. We realize this. You're here 125% of the time. We recognize that. But most of us, that's not our rhythm. So I go back and I say, what meaningful progress can I make in anything in life if I can only give it 30 minutes of my attention a month? If my New Year's resolution this year was, you know what, I'm going to lose that 15 pounds and I'm going to diet 30 minutes every month, right? It's going to be from 3.30 to 4 a.m. every, I'm going to not eat anything, right? If you really want to get a promotion or if you want to move up in your job, and you know it's going to take some more performance from you, and you commit yourself to giving 30 minutes a month, for most of us, that's not going to be what gets you from here to there, right? If you want to run a 5K this year, running for 30 minutes a month, getting on the treadmill for 30 minutes a month is going to do little to nothing other than to discourage you to never get on the treadmill again, okay? The point that I'm making is, you know, I'm not trying to make you feel guilty for not attending church more often. That's a horrible reason to come to church is to get rid of guilt, Okay, well, I feel guilty, I'm just going so I feel less guilty. This is not, you know, a, an appeasement for your guilt. What I'm saying is that somewhere can we meet together on this. I recognize the most important pursuit in my life is my pursuit of Jesus Christ. The most important relationship that I have is understand, not just studying him like he's the object of my research, but knowing him, being with him understanding his feelings, living every moment of my life with an awareness that he is here, he's everywhere all the time, and so it shouldn't be hard to find him. We just need to learn how to pay better attention to him. So the one thing that landed in my heart, here's the thing I want to help you with over these next 12 months. In whatever time that you give me permission to speak into your life, I want to help you develop more awareness of the concrete presence of God in your everyday. I want to help you Know how to be convinced that God is concretely with you right now, right here. That will change your life. When you recognize he's not just somebody that is inaccessible, that you have to jump through a whole bunch of hoops. To, he is everywhere. He's in everything. And he's not making himself hard to find. 
We just need to learn how to pay better attention. So we talked a lot about that two weeks ago. This week, we're going to actually start in the beginning of the Gospel of Mark. And we're going to be in the Gospel of Mark up through... Uh, Easter time, okay? So we are really going to dial into one particular gospel, and we're going to go through it chronologically. We will not cover every single verse on a Sunday morning, okay? That would take much longer than these few weeks. But we're going to go through a chapter at a time, and whoever's teaching that Sunday will pick out something that God puts on their heart from that chapter, and we'll talk more about it on a Sunday. But we're going to be encouraging you, and I'll talk about this at the conclusion, we're going to be encouraging every one of you, if you haven't already started to do so, read through the Gospel of Mark together with us in bite-sized pieces. Let's read through the whole thing, not just skipping through to find your favorite part, let's read through the whole Gospel. If this is true, or if it might be true, it's worth your time to investigate it. It is worth your time to look into, if you're basing all of your hopes on the afterlife, on what the Bible says, it is reckless to not investigate it. It's responsible, it's responsible to dig into it and look deeper. So I'm going to help do some of that on a Sunday morning. We're going to put some tools in your hand. We've made them available online to help you in this process. But with all that behind us, let me begin to read to you from the very beginning of the Gospel of Mark. I will not do a whole long backstory on the gospel of mark this morning it's hard for me not to do that because you know my problem is i nerd out on this stuff like i i've had two weeks that three weeks now really to think about this message and the, you should see my notes it's like it's typewritten from last sunday and then since it's all covered in blue ink from new things i'm thinking about i will restrain myself from keeping you here all afternoon to read it to you but i will save it because it's great stuff for maybe me to go back to later but i'm going to read through the first part of the cha- of chapter one of the gospel of mark know this mark wrote to a different audience than matthew luke and john okay some people why do we have four different gospels why do we have four different accounts of jesus life which is more accurate which is less accurate you know uh, what why do we need four different there's a lot of different ways to describe it one of the one of the analogies I've used here is like, listen, if you gave four different filmmakers a film crew and you asked them to cover any major event, cover the inauguration of a president, and you gave four different film crews a budget and a camera, they'd all be covering the same event, but they'd all have a different POV, a different perspective, different point of view. And when you lay all those things on top of each other, you get a more complete story. If you could somehow cut your television screen into four quadrants and watch what they all are saying, they're going to be picking up different views and different angles. One of them is going to be taking the panoramic shot and showing how big or little the crowd is, right? Another one's going to be zooming in on an individual in the crowd. Somebody might be zooming in on the speaker. Somebody else might be looking at someone reacting to the speaker. They're all covering the same story, but there's so much of a story to cover, one person couldn't get it all. So the advantage we have is that you have four different historically credible authors, all who have apostolic authority, all who through eyewitness accounts have carefully recorded the Gospels. All of them published these things while the eyewitnesses were still alive, and so if they got anything wrong, it would have been challenging. It survived the test of history and got here. Now, Mark probably wrote to Romans or at the very least Gentiles. In other words, he was not writing to people who had familiarity with the Old Testament, so he doesn't include a lot of it. He does not start the gospel at Jesus' birth like Matthew and Luke do. He actually starts with John the Baptist, and he says this is where the good news of Jesus begins. Okay? He, more than any other author, is blunt and to the point. Some of you would really like Mark. He doesn't get into a whole lot of commentary. He, he focuses more on the reaction of people to Jesus than some of the other gospels, but it's sometimes to be able to get the full story of, of something that he puts in there, you need to pair it with 
like John the Baptist, he's giving you the forensic details. But then when you look at uh, the story we're going to read today is actually one of the few that's recorded in all four Gospels. We've got a pretty complete picture. John the Baptist was a pretty key guy in the, in the ancient Near East and in the bringing Jesus into the world. And so that's the guy we're going to look at today. And we're going to look at him through the lens of what we would probably say, those of you that studied the Bible, if you said, what was John the Baptist's biggest God moment he ever had? Most of you would land on this story. Right? You'd say, well, it was the day that he was baptizing people and Jesus shows up and he baptized Jesus. The sky opened, God spoke audibly. A bird flies down and lands on Jesus. Like this, this is not normal living. You'd say this was his main God moment. And I wouldn't argue with that. Some of my questions are, do you think he, when he woke up that morning that this was gonna happen that day, do you think he knew? Do you think he knew, you know what, on January the 19th of whatever year that it was, this is the day Jesus is going to interrupt me at work. Do you think he knew that it was going to happen? Do you think that was in his plan for the day? The Bible tells us it wasn't. In fact, John confesses with his own mouth later on. He says, in fact, he says the next, one of the, the gospel writers says, the next day, John the Baptist sees Jesus again and says, I didn't put this all together yesterday, but now I want to go on record as saying he's the son of God. Well, how do you know? Well, when I baptized him, I saw a bird come down and land on him, and it reminded me of this other God moment I had years ago. And now I'm putting it all together. He did not know that it was going to, it wasn't in his plan. At the same time, he'd say it wasn't totally unexpected. Last week, we talked about God meeting us in, or two weeks ago, God meeting us in unplanned and unexpected ways. But you know, he can also meet you in unplanned but expected ways. You live a lot of your life based on the unplanned but expected. It's why you have all kinds of light bulbs that you can never find when one burns out. Because some time ago you said, at some point in the future, this light bulb's going to burn out. And I want to have one around so that when it happens, I can thrive in the moment, right? If we went through your glove box or your trunk, there's probably some things in there you have just in case. You're not planning for your battery to die today, but if it does, you've got jumper cables you don't know how to use, right? In your glove box, you've probably got some stuff in there. I mean, I don't want to go too deep into your world, right? In your purse, in your pocketbook. We live a lot of our life in the unplanned but not unexpected zone, and God meets us there too. So let me, let me kind of prove that thesis to you. Gospel of Mark, chapter 1. He says, this is the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. It began just as the prophet Isaiah had written. So he goes back to the Old Testament. Wouldn't have meant a whole lot to the Romans, but he's trying to show them that this wasn't something random. This is something that God set in motion before Jesus, the God-man, showed up. He says, this is from Isaiah, a direct quote. Look. I am sending my messenger ahead of you, the you meaning Jesus, the Messiah. He will prepare your way. He is a voice shouting in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord's coming, clear the road for him. So hundreds of years before Jesus comes on the scene, it's contained in the prophets that something to watch for, that the the Jews wanted the Messiah to come. He meant They didn't quite get what he was going to bring to them. They thought political freedom, that he was going to restore their nation to them again and kick the Romans or whoever was leading them out of there and let them be the dominant world power again. Jesus came to seek and save the lost. And so, you know, he was very popular at first until people started to put two to two together and they were like, man, this guy, he's not talking about being the king. He's, He's talking about something totally different. 
But this is what they were looking for. They were looking for before Jesus, there was going to be another messenger. And the only clues they have is that he'll be pointing attention to the Messiah. He'll be in the wilderness, literal, figurative. They didn't know. And the content of his message would be prepare for the Lord's coming, clear the road for him. So Mark cuts all the guesswork out. And he, again, he's very blunt. He goes, this messenger was John the Baptist. Just totally jumps to the conclusion. It's not a whodunit movie. It's not a slow reveal. He's like, thousands of years ago, they said the messenger was coming, and it's John the Baptist. So, like, he cut, some of you would love him. He would cut the news down to three minutes. Your, your undergrad courses would be, you know, 15 minutes tops. He just cuts right to the chase. He was in the wilderness, and preached that people should be baptized to show that they had repented of their sins and turned to God to be forgiven, which is interesting. We'll come back to that. Like, where did he come up with that idea? That was a new sermon. That was a new sermon to Jews. Jews didn't talk about being baptized in water to be forgiven for sins. They were forgiven for sins how? How did the Jews believe that God told them? Was the, how did they have to forgive? Animal sacrifice. Yay. We're not talking about that today. Your pets are safe, okay? But I want you to read carefully into this I don't want to spend a lot of time on this but I know some of the way you think you're like I have a problem with what John the Baptist was preaching was he preaching the antithesis of what the law was at the time no he actually says they were to be baptized to show that they had repented of their sins not to repent for their sins in other words John wasn't teaching all of your sacrifices to God have not been accepted I'm teaching a new way you know new medical research here's a new treatment all your old treatments throw them away and just be baptized in water that replaces it no he was saying this should be done in addition to okay to show that they had already repented of their sins now this is amazing to me it's never been amazing until i dug a little deeper all of judea including all the people of jerusalem went out to see and hear john and when they had confessed their sins he baptized them in the jordan river how many of you have been to israel I do want to take some trips to Israel. It's not cheap, but I'm telling you, it's, it's, it's life-changing. It really is. You come back with a better Bible. When you start to understand the geography, this verse jumps out. Where John was baptizing people geographically was not in a metropolitan area. Okay? This is before Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, social media. This is before, this is before marketing um, could be mostly digital and move at lightning speed. He did not live in a major metropolitan area. He was literally 20 miles geographically where he set up shop from Judea, from where Jerusalem was. It was 20 miles on foot. Not only that, it was 4,000 feet below Jerusalem. Now, read this verse again. All of the people of Judea and even Jerusalem, John didn't go to them. Listen, if your mission from God was to be a messenger to a mass of people back in this day, first strategy I would have come up with, let me go where the people are. I don't have a phone. I don't have 106 million, you know, Twitter followers like Katy Perry does. I don't have that, right? I have to get myself a platform, you know, because if you're going to be a messenger, you need two things, a good message and people to listen. Some of us have good messages and no followers. Some of us have lots of followers and nothing to say right? So I'm just thinking logically, which is a lot of my problem with Christianity. I love, I love logic. And what the Bible tells us, it's just buried in there, 
is that nearly the entire population of a city, I guess by word of mouth only, walk 20 miles down 4,000 feet through very rugged territory if you've been there. Not an easy walk. They get baptized, and then what do you have to do? It's like, you know, your granddad who always told you the story, you know, well, when I grew up, we had to walk to school, eight feet of snow, it was uphill both ways, right? Once you went down to the baptism, you had to get out and you had to literally walk 20 miles this way and almost one mile that way, like walking up to Denver from sea level. What was he talking about that people were willing to do that for? Were they really going out there because they're like, I need someone to tell me how awful I am to be baptized? All historical, all historical commentators say his message about repentance probably wasn't the most attractive part. But there was two things he was talking about. Remember, you have to have a message and people to listen. He did say he needed to be baptized. But you know what the other thing that he was talking about? The Messiah is coming soon. Yeshua is coming soon. Well, he wouldn't have called him Yeshua. That was his name. And he would have said the Messiah. The Messiah is coming soon. And people are like, this guy seems to have the credible answers for something we've been dying to hear for centuries. And they literally, I'm talking tax collectors, craftsmen, politicians, religious teachers, the great and the small, would walk 20 miles down 4,000 feet to hear a message, to be baptized, and then go back home. He was an incredibly powerful, influential figure. He had an incredible platform. I don't know if there's anybody who was not an emperor or a government official who had the platform that John the Baptist had at that time, and he made all of them nervous. If you know the end of the story, that actually did him in. But to jump ahead a little bit, one of the other things that blows me away, he was ready to hand that platform. He was ready to go down. He'd give up all his followers as soon as he knew that his purpose had been fulfilled, which blows me away. He had disciples. He had masses of people hanging on his every word. And yet down the road, when he finally did say, it's not about my followers, it's about following Jesus. And his own disciples came to John the Baptist and they were, they're like, man, we're losing followers. They were discouraged, they were losing popularity. John the, John the Baptist said, listen, that's not what we're here for. He can have the whole platform. He has to increase, I have to decrease. Tell me anybody else who has that type of platform who would give it up. Amazing man of integrity, amazing man of credibility. I continue. His clothes were woven from coarse camel hair and he wore a leather belt around his waist. Very, uh, really high-end vintage clothing. For food, great diet as well. He ate locusts and wild honey. And this verse always, I'm like, okay, Mark, of all the details he doesn't include, he includes this. Why? And the short answer is, is uh, to us, it seems really unusual. Back in the day, it wasn't. It was typical of people who consider themselves to be holy men. In the Near East, the holy men wore these types of clothes. Isaiah dressed similar to this way. His diet was well within what the, uh, what the Jews allowed in their law. It was clean, but it was very restricted. What does it tell us? This guy was not just window dressing. This guy preached a message of holiness, and he lived a holy life. This guy preached a life of being disciplined before the Lord, and he lived a life of absolute discipline. He looked behind the scenes every bit the way you would want somebody who carried his type of message to carry it. Because if you're going to be a good messenger, and you want people to listen to what you have to say, friends, you better be credible. There's all kinds of people that can talk a lot of talk and post a lot of things and get a lot of followers, but they're living a life in contradiction with what they're speaking. 
And you know what happens when the curtain gets pulled back on somebody you used to listen to to influence you and you find out they're not everything they say they were? They lose almost all influence in your world. John recognized his message of holiness and he was hungry for the truth. He didn't have time for gossip. He didn't have time for a lot of other pursuits. He was all about holiness and repentance and preparing the way for Jesus. And friend, that's all he did every single day, 24, 7, 365. That's what he was about. And when you looked into his life, he matched. Could your life stand the same level of scrutiny that John the Baptist had? When people from the major metropolitan areas are walking 20 miles to hear you talk to them about the issues in their own heart and how they need to live holy lives, you better have your own house in order because the message of holiness still needs to be preached today, but the carriers are few. Even those of us that say, you know what, I really should speak up about some issues I see in my kids or in one of my close friends. There's some stuff in their life that's not right. They need to get clean. They need to get pure. A, it's not an easy message to carry if you've ever had to carry that conversation. It's not one we volunteer for. But B, if you're gonna be heard, you better have yourself in order. It shows me this guy was everything, everything that you would hope somebody who's carrying that message would be. Verse seven, John announced, someone is coming soon who is greater than I am. Here's my question. How did he know? Who's he talking about? Someone's coming soon who's greater than I am. Who's he talking about? We know. Who is it? Jesus. He hadn't come yet. Or at least John hadn't met him yet. He was alive at that time. He says, someone's coming soon who's greater than I am. How did he know that? How did he know? Who told him? Holy Spirit? God? Who else? Who told him? The angel? Okay, angel told his mom, who might have told him, could have come down through the family. Don't forget this about John the Baptist. You know how, about how old his parents were when he was born? They were more than 60. The Bible doesn't give us a number, but it says when they were well on in age, and in that day, that meant 60 plus. Do we hear any more about their parents much after he was born? Not really. Most people believe that he was orphaned at a young age because his parents had him when they were old. They probably passed away soon thereafter, and so he was raised by probably the Qumran community where he lived. How did he know for sure that Jesus was coming? How did he know? We have theories. Could have been through the angel, through God. Absolutely. Could have been through the Old Testament scriptures that the Qumran community were big on preserving and teaching. Could have been a combination of both. God speaks to us in different ways, doesn't he? He speaks us through other followers. He speaks to us through his word. He speaks to us through our Christian community. I don't know how it happened or when it happened, but John, John was convinced that at several moments in his life, he had a God moment where God revealed to him something about the future. And he held on to those and they shaped his whole life. All I'm telling you is that before this God moment happens right here, he had a lifetime filled with God moments. He didn't just look for God in one big epic moment when he would see Jesus. He looked for God every single day, every single moment of his life as he went after being the person God called him to be, to be the very best follower of God, the very best messenger, the very best citizen, the very best teacher, the very best of what God could make him to be. He pursued that, and in that, God intersected with almost every moment of his life, and he stored these things away. So he didn't know what day this someone was coming, but he knew that he was. Friend, what has God promised you? And you don't know what day it's coming, but you know it's coming. I held the permanent residency cards of Rajiv and Suba this morning that they've been praying for for years, for years. How many years, guys? Seven, eight, six, six years. Have you prayed for anything for six months? Usually we conclude if it doesn't come after six months, it must not be God's will. Well, sometimes that's the case, right? 
Rajiv and Suba knew in their hearts that God had said, it's coming. They couldn't plan it. In fact, there's been lots of times that we were like, it has to come in this week or else. <laughs> it has to come in this month or else. And what happens? Government gets shut down. Oh, it's not coming. During a shutdown. <laughs> God puts his fingerprints. It was not unexpected. They knew it was unplanned. They didn't know it was going to come when it came. But it was not unexpected. John knew that he knew that he knew. How did he know? I guess in some type of a God moment, when he was aware of God's presence, God communicated it to him. Whether he was studying the scripture, listening to a teacher, praying on his own time, God dropped in his heart, he heard it from a family member, any, all of the above, I don't know. But somehow, some way, he knew God was speaking directly to him about his future. And he said, this is going to happen so much so he put his life on the line and gave up everything to get that message out. Don't you want to be energized by something God whispers to you and says, prepare for this? Don't you want to feel like you would have the confidence to take that to heart if God did whisper that to you? Because a lot of us might say, I think maybe God might have whispered something like that to me, but I'm not putting it into action because what if I chase it and I'm wrong? Is that reckless? Here's a guy who knew that he knew that he knew. At some point, Jesus was going to show up Now, by everything else John says, he didn't know what day Jesus was coming. He didn't know what he was going to be wearing. He didn't know what color hair he would have. Would he be a white guy, a Middle Eastern guy, or this guy? We don't know. He didn't know. Would he have a long flowing beard? Would he he be wearing the white tunic from the Easter play? We don't know. He didn't know. He didn't know when or where or how. He didn't know he was supposed to baptize him. That's why he's so shocked here in a moment when Jesus asked him to baptize him. He says, this is backwards. (laughs) I shouldn't be serving you. Or I'm sorry, you shouldn't, yeah, I shouldn't be baptizing you, you should be baptizing me. He hesitated, even though he knew in his heart someday it would come. Even when it came, he was like, uh, you know, I prepared my whole life for this, but this is, what do I do in this moment? A lot of times we shrink away from the more epic God moments because our heart's not prepared for it. We get all fixated on the what we want to happen in our life, but we don't spend any time developing the who, and a lot of us can't get to the what because our who can't support it. Your who you are, is not ready for the what you're chasing. Not in my notes. Hold on to that, okay? I may need to come back to that later. But a lot of times, you're not getting to the what or the where you want in life because your who's not ready for it, okay? Aren't you glad you didn't get everything you always ask God for when you asked for it? Who would you be married to? Like, what job would you be working you know, what fashion would you have? You know, like all these different things. Aren't you glad that God doesn't give us everything we ask for the moment that we ask it? Let's continue on. John said, someone's coming soon who's greater than I am, so much greater than me that I'm not even worthy to stoop down like a slave and untie the straps of his sandals, says the man who arguably was the most influential human being in that area at that time. He says, there's somebody so much greater than me, I'm not even worthy to be his slave. Do you hear anybody of celebrity and influence who talks about anybody else that way today? It's all about being the man, the woman. It's all about being the person. And once they get that level of power and influence, they keep it by not deferring to anybody else. And here's a guy who already knows who he is and who he isn't. That's humility. Humility is thinking neither more highly nor lowly of yourself than you ought to. 
He was nobody's doormat. He was courageous. He was bold. He was honest to the point where it cost him his life. He pointed out hypocrisy and sin in his leaders to the point where they killed him because of it. And he would not back down. All he had to do was recant and be quiet, wouldn't do it. So he was nobody's doormat. At the same time, he did not have this ego that said, he recognized that someday, you know what, I might have to give up all my followers, but it's not about building a platform for me. It's about getting the way ready for somebody greater than me. You see, when you can live your life that way, God can trust you with so much. When you're not doing it to pad your own stats and your own ego, when he can give you success financially, success relationally, success and influence, and you can use it for the greater good of his kingdom and not to pad your own portfolio, he can trust you with more. Why do you think he could trust John the Baptist? Because he did nothing but make himself a gigantic arrow to one who came after him, and he could have easily leveraged his influence for personal gain. Do you know people in your life who have tremendous gifts and abilities that they could really put it to much better use, but all they do is leverage it for themselves? They have all kinds of skills, all kinds of abilities, and they could still really take care of themselves, but they could give some of that back to making the lives of people around them better, but they won't do it. They look at Even the things that looks like they're trying to help other people, they're really using it to leverage and make themselves look so generous and so helpful. Here was a man who did not use people as pawns to manipulate them, He just loved them and served them and prepared the way for a man he had never even met. That's John the Baptist. One day, probably about A.D. 27-ish, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and John baptized him in the Jordan River. There's so much more detail here that I'll show you in a second. As Jesus came up out of the water, he saw the heavens splitting apart and the Holy Spirit descending upon him like a dove. And a voice from heaven said, you're my dearly loved son and you bring me great joy. And that's the part I've usually preached on when I've gotten to this passage. But I'll leave that, um, I'll leave that day as a very succinct account. So let me tie all this together for you and make some application. Here's the big idea. I've said it in a million different ways, but if you need it a little stickier and shorter. Big idea is that living with confident expectations prepares us to thrive in unplanned occasions. I love that God shows up at times. We're not planning it and we're not expecting it. I think a lot of time we want God to only show up in planned occasions. God, I'm giving you this 14 minutes this morning. It might be seven, but I'm going to give you 14. And I need the heavens to open, give or take the dove, Um, lightning, maybe, uh, I'd like some warmth, I'd like some sunshine, I'd like some, a good message of prosperity, I'd like to open up the mailbox, have some checks I wasn't expecting there, I'd like the annoying person at work to have moved to another location in my seven minutes. And if it doesn't happen in your seven, you conclude what? God was not there. Or your church service. You want God to show up, well, I would say between 10 and 11.30, let's be real about Echo, between 10.30 and 11.20. And in that 50 minutes, you want to show up really in this window of time, either by this song or for a lot of us, it's like, well, I know God shows up when there's a message in tongues or when there's a, a healing or when we stop the service, we don't preach, but we're all on the altar. Or when we really hear that we really could sense the presence of God during the sermon. And if he does not show up in the way we're looking for him in our planned time, we go home and we conclude God was not there. I think a lot of us really, if we were honest with ourselves, we look for God in planned occasions. 
And he either shows up or he doesn't. And a lot of the teaching we've got on how to have a devotional life, how to have a prayer life, revolves around us living almost an exclusively planned, almost like we dictate to God, listen, um, for you to be part of my life, here's where I'm going to squeeze you in. Now I'm going to do it every day. And if I do it every day at the same time, you're even more obligated to show up in that way. You have a God then who serves you, which doesn't make him a God, it makes you one. And that God won't save you. That God will never challenge you. That God will never transform your life. That God will never change you. I have a God who is, and I am thankful for any little crumb of his presence he will drop into my life. But here's the crazy thing. The Bible is dripping full with invitations from God that says he wants to be with you even more than you want to be with him. That is not logical. There is no reason for him to crave my presence. So I don't want to say that God can't meet you in your planned Bible study time, in your planned prayer time, in your planned worship time, because he can and he does. And if he's not meeting you, it's not because he's not present, it's because somehow you're not paying attention to where he is, because he's everywhere. That's what I'm trying to help you with this year. But what I see in John the Baptist is a guy who lived with a sense of expectation and what got him to that point of that fever pitch point of confidence that was really going to happen It was that daily time he spent listening to God and going after what he wanted. And so when that moment finally came, even though he didn't have the details, John the Baptist rose to the occasion. He did did exactly what he was supposed to do. God has those moments planned out for you in your life. I don't know where they are. But there there are appointments and occasions that God knows are yet to come in your life. And they're pivotal, pivotal moments for you. It can be about anything. Life, relationships, jobs, sharing your faith with somebody, ethical situations. There are tons of, they're probably on a daily basis. And if you're going to thrive in those moments, cultivating that daily awareness of God's presence gets you ready. So that when you're in that moment... <laughs> Even though you didn't see it necessarily coming that day, you're not shocked that you're there. I don't know how to explain this practically because it's abstract. I don't know if you're tracking with me or not. Other than you've probably <laughs> recognized retroactively at times that, man, I didn't realize two hours ago what that conversation was all about. And now that I'm playing it back in my mind, oh, did I miss it? There was, a, there was something that could have happened right there, but I wasn't. I wasn't tuned in, and, and, and it's gone now, but there was something going on. What sets you up to thrive in those moments? Personally, oh, I don't have time. Let me summarize it. Years ago, years ago, when God was first beginning to develop gifts of healing through my life and my ministry, where I would pray for sick people and believe by faith that they would be healed, and, and, and things would happen on the spot, and sometimes it happened over time, but it, it during that time, one of the things I really wrestled with was intimidation and inadequacy and skepticism. And I've told you this story before, so I won't tell it again today about the first experience I had where I saw someone healed through something that I prayed. It was in a foreign country. I didn't even speak the language. I wasn't paying any attention. I was supervising our, our youth ministry at the time, and an interpreter grabs me and says, this lady wants to walk. And I'm like, great go pray for her you know and she's like no you need to pray I'm like why she's like you're the pastor I'm like great like I don't I wasn't ready for that I wasn't ready the end of the story is the lady got up and started walking around after our I, well I don't know what the interpreter prayed 
I was saying some things. She might have been editing the whole thing. (laughs) But I remember going home, and there's this question that went through my mind. I said, Lord, what would I do if in the middle of a service someday when I'm ministering that somebody came in in a wheelchair, and they pushed them down to the front, and they stopped the service, and they asked the pastor, can you pray for them? They, They have faith to believe to walk. What would I do in that moment? And even imagining it for a while terrified me. I'm like, I'll pray for the person with a paper cut and an ingrown toenail and a cold and some seasonal allergies. Like, can I work up to what we in our own mind think are the more extreme things? I'm just trying to be human with you about this. And I have not had that experience yet. But I think about it and I pray about it often. And when that moment comes in my life, I still don't totally know what the outcome will be, but I I believe with all my heart I'm ready to thrive in that moment. I don't know what day it will happen. I don't know when or where I'll be. I don't know if it'll ever happen, but I'm confident. I am confident because God keeps bringing that back to me over and over, almost at least on the monthly basis. He brings that back into my imagination, something I pray about, and I don't want to use the word rehearse. I don't want to use it. I practice through that moment with the Holy Spirit so that in that moment, my flesh won't respond, my spirit will. And you're like, Pastor, are you teaching brainwashing? I think, I, I'm not. I'm not. I know it sounds spooky. What I'm telling you, though, is I don't know that that's so unlike the process John the Baptist must have gone through as he's trying to figure out, okay, I've been given a message. I don't have parents. I don't live near people. But you see, the day Jesus walked into John the Baptist's world, John the Baptist did not miss the moment. Jesus did not come up with one of those name tags that adheres to his clothes that said, hi, my name is Jesus of Nazareth, in parentheses, the Messiah, hint, hint. He didn't like walk up and introduce him, you know, like, hi, you know, Yeshua from, from Nazareth, I'm the man you've been talking about, step aside. None of that happened. None of it happened. But John first recognized there's something different about him. He recognized I shouldn't be baptizing him. He should be baptizing me. After he baptizes him and John sees the heavens open and the voice speak out loud, Like literally, a voice from heaven spoke out loud. This is my beloved son whom I'm well pleased. A dove. Then he says this in uh, John chapter 1, verses 29 through 35. Listen, this just gives you more detail. Another camera angle. Let me give you the dialogue. Next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him. He said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, he's the one I was talking about when I said, a man is coming after me who's far greater than I am for he existed a long time before me. In other words, the day after the baptism, now John's putting it together. Sees Jesus again and says, aha, here's what it all means. He says, he says I did not recognize him as the Messiah, but I have been baptizing with water so that he might be revealed to Israel. Then John testified, and then I saw the Holy Spirit descending like a dove from heaven and resting on him. I didn't know he was the one, but when God sent me to baptize with water, he told me the one on whom you see the Spirit descend and rest is the one who will, bapt- you, who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I saw this happen to Jesus, so I testify he's the chosen one of God. My goodness, do you understand what's happening here? First of all, he's signing his death warrant. He's going on record, this is the Messiah, this is the Son of God. You didn't go around doing that, okay? He's also saying, let me tell you about a whole bunch of God moments I had in the past. One day, God said, the person, you'll know the the Messiah because, you know, a dove will land on him, right? He's saying, one day, you'll know the Messiah because he'll come to you to be, he's saying, now I'm putting this all together. And I'm saying, 
This is the man. So what do we take? What do we take from all of that? I'll give you the, the fill in the blanks because some of you go crazy if I don't. Um, a brief review of how we define God moments. A God moment is whenever I am aware of God's concrete presence in my life. Whenever you're aware, it's not just something that happens and then disappears and happens and disappears and you only get 10 of them in a week to use them wisely. That's not a God moment. That's how a lot of us think God is. It's like, I have to make all the conditions right and the plants have to align and I have to be quiet and have the right tea and all the kids have to be in bed. It has to be silent, no Netflix, no nothing. And then I'm just quiet and then I hear something and that's my God moment. I don't get another one for two weeks until I can repeat the conditions again. That's not a God moment. God's everywhere, all the time, in everything. And anytime you're aware of his presence, that's a God moment and it's everywhere. It's everywhere. It's in the warmth of the sun. It's in watching the white snow blanket the dirty ground. Pastor, you're weird. Okay. It's in watching a tree sway in the wind and ask yourself if all the laws of motion are right and what's making that tree move is moving air, what kind of mass does air have and who told those molecules to move? And you're like, there must be some cause that can make air move. Well, it's the theory of the law of thermodynamics. Maybe. Or perhaps, like David said, God is revealing himself to us in stormy winds that do his bidding. And you can go outside and feel the breeze go across your face and say, the only reason I feel this breeze is because God told that air to move right across my face. And here he is right now. Pastor, you're strange. Guilty as charged. I'm just trying to be connected to the God that I love and that I serve in more ways than my natural heart just knows to look at. He's everywhere. And anytime you're aware of God's presence, that's a God moment. It's a God moment. Number two, God moments are recognized primarily through awareness and prayer. Talked about that last week. And they're put into motion primarily through discernment and decisions. Why are we talking about moments in motion? Because if I only tell you how to recognize God's presence and you never learn what to do with what you're recognizing, you're not going to get any traction. You see, discernment, that turns into decisions is what you do with your God moment. Discernment means figuring out what it means. And sometimes you know right now, like the other day, I'm literally walking through the park. This is where God and I were going to the grocery store together at Aldi. Thank you for those of you that have helped me to be uh, prepared uh, for, you know, I, w- I can now thrive at Aldi. Because I, I don't always get to go to Aldi when I plan to go. It usually is like an emergency text message with a short list. And now I have a roll of quarters and a, and a whole bunch of plastic grocery bags in my glove box, thanks to all of the donors uh, from Echo. So now I can thrive in those unplanned moments. Um, I'm walking in and I walk by a piece of litter. Most of my life, I would have just walked right on by. I looked down and I saw it. And the moment that I saw it, I wish I hadn't seen it. Because as soon as I saw it, I'm like, I should really pick it up. I really don't want to. It's dirty. I don't like to touch dirty things. I have a preschooler and I have a toddler at home. We touch dirt all the time and I deal with that. This is someone else's dirt that's not related to me. And here's exactly I'm so ashamed to say this. Here's exactly what's going through my mind at the time. I saw it and I know God saw me see it. And he's not going to let this go. And then I'm like, I'll get it. I'm literally, this is all happening in like the the space of a pace. I'm like, I'll get it on the way out if it's still there. And then I'm like, 
This is going to bother me all through the grocery shopping trip. I'll just do it now. And so begrudgingly, I pick the thing up and throw it away. And in my mind, he's like, are you happy? <laughs> Discernment, decision. Sometimes you don't need to go home and pray about, should I have picked up that piece of litter today? If I looked at it and I knew right away that God was expecting me to be a good neighbor and a good citizen that day. A good part of our community. I have a framed and matted certificate in my office, thanks to Christian, that says there's a year where I was the citizen of the year, right? Never got me a discount at Mission Barbecue. I walked in the next day. I'm expecting them to, like, throw brisket at me. Like, citizen of the year. They're like, who are you again? I'm here, like, four times a week. You know. But in the space of one pace, I'm just like, are you happy? And a couple hours later, God came back to that kind of are you happy moment I had and just gently said to me, he's like, you know, I've noticed, he's saying to me, you know, I've noticed what really drives you nuts with your oldest son. It's like when you ask him to do something and he obeys you, but he does it stomping his feet. I'm like, yeah, it drives me nuts. He's like, you're no different. I no longer shop at Aldi. (laughs) Go to other cleaner grocery stores. Was not some huge Jesus walking down the thing asking me to baptize him? Walking in the grocery store trying to mind my own business, but I was aware of God's presence. I responded in a way that I thought he should be proud of. And later on, he's like, right thing, wrong attitude, still, you know, still not the picture we're looking for. You know, discernment and decisions. What do you do with those moments? Do you walk past it and just say, you know what, I'll think about this for later. Other times it's like, like what Mary, Mary, the mother of Jesus, had a lot to digest a lot of different times. And you read these cool verses about like, Mary observed all these different people coming and bringing her son's gifts that she had never met. And she just stored it in her heart and thought about it for a while. Don't know what to do with what's going on, but I know it's God. So JTB did a little of both. He preached, but he prepared his, it's too long to type out. So now I, he's JTB, he's JTB in my contacts, okay. He, he, he prepared himself, but he didn't like, you know, get analysis paralysis. He didn't get stuck there. So what does the Bible tell us about John the Baptist? Unfortunately, because I wasn't following my notes, I answered all those questions. What unfolded in John the Baptist's God moment recorded in one, Mark 1, 9 to 11? Jumped ahead, answered all that. Uh, what can we learn about John the Baptist about developing a greater awareness of God's cre- concrete presence? I taught it, but I didn't give you the point. So let me just give you the, the write down things. Here, here's something I've learned from him. Pursue who God wants me to be today. Pursue who God wants me to be today. Pastor, are you saying be, you be your best you now? Be all you can be and find a future in the army? You, you, it kind of sounds like that. But you know how John got to this day? A whole lot of days of getting up in the morning and saying, who has God made me to be? He's made me to be a messenger. He's made me to be a citizen. He's made me to be a neighbor. He's made me to be a teacher of disciples. That's who God's made me to be. There's a whole bunch of other things he hasn't made me to be. I'm going to chase after being who God's made me to be today. And it was in those days of him being who God asked him to be that all these parts about God's knowledge about his future started getting downloaded into his spirit. What am I trying to say to you? Listen, if you want to get where God wants you to go, start today by being the person you know you should be today. Let me make it easy. You're a husband or a wife. You're a son. You're a daughter. You're a brother. You're a sister. Are you being the best version of that that God's equipped you to be today? Or is there a little bit of progress you can go after through some of your effort in God's anointing? You're a citizen. You're an employee. 
or maybe an employer or a retiree or unemployed. That's part of your identity. That's part of who God's, that's part of the role of your life. What if you got up today and part of your thoughts was, God, how can I, how can I honor you in that role of my life today? What has he built you to do? John knew he was a messenger. And what I see is a guy who wasn't running around trying to figure out who he was supposed to be or getting other people to tell him who he might possibly could be if he applied himself. He knew who God built him to be, and every day of his life, he chased after that. And where did he find his biggest God moment? Right smack dab in the middle of him being who he was supposed to be. To go to work in the desert, baptizing people in the hot, smelly, nasty, if you've been in the Jordan River and parts of it, Jordan River, wearing what he wore, eating honey and locusts every day, He didn't know that day was any different, but where did God find him? God found him at the intersection of John being who he was supposed to be today and one of the biggest God moments history has ever seen. You know where God's gonna find you? Right at the intersection of you being who you're supposed to be today. Now let me totally deflate that point. And he'll also find you when you're running in the opposite direction. Thank you, Saul of Tarsus and Jonah. Pursue who God wants you to be today. That'll unlock your ability. Why should God have a whole lot of conversation with you about your future when you're not even listening to him in your present? It makes no point. God, tell me about my future and I'll get my act straightened up. That's not how it works. If you can't follow step one, why give you step 27? Makes no sense. Some of you are stuck there. Your who, again, isn't ready to support the what. Another thing John taught me, look for God in the process, not just in big events. One of my favorite, and I'm probably mess it up again. Uh, Dr. Joe is an avid cyclist. And, you know, he talks about in cycling circles, they say the destination is the journey. I think so much of us have our life mapped out when I find love, when I get a house, when I hit this financial goal, when I get this promotion, when I retire my day. Whatever it might be, there's these big milestones. And look for God not just in the milestones because they're going to be there, right? You're going to have some of those milestones, but they're not guaranteed to all of us. Look for God in the everyday process. John found God in so many God moments that led up to this big day. He enjoyed, he was content doing what God called him to do on the daily basis. When you live with expectation, you rise to the occasion. I talked about that all morning. Let me close. Here's something that we're going to do together as a church. I believe, I believe with all my heart, um, it will help you calibrate your life around understanding awareness. Now, we started this last week, and we had planned to launch this all in the service last week, and we had weather. So that was unplanned and unexpected. But uh, a lot of you have started off on this. We're asking, we're calling this 21 Days Together. We're asking all of us as a church family to do three things together. Read the Bible together, fast together, pray together. Now, this officially kicked off last Sunday. But have no fear. If you want to jump in and you didn't, you just jump in and you can retitle, you can customize this title. 14 days together for you. Okay? And here's what we're doing. We're reading through the beginning of gospel, the gospel of Mark together. We're putting it on, we're actually typed, we've typed it all out and we post it on Facebook every day for those of you that are on Facebook to make it really easy for you. Um, for those of you that aren't on Facebook or you prefer a different reading plan, on your way out today, there's, uh, we have printed 
uh, reading guides that you can take home with you that drop that has all the little segments that we're reading together. It's just a powerful thing when we as a church are reading together, you know, reading together the same passages. Well, Pastor, I, I missed a couple days and now I'm hopelessly behind. I'm not gonna if you missed a few days, just start on the day that we're on today. And if you get time, go back and catch up. Just jump in where we're at. Don't talk yourself out of it. If you really want to, if it's not enough reading for you, you've already read through all of the readings on the first day because you really jumped into it. There are other books in the Bible you can get into, okay? But we really want to focus in on this. We're going to be talking about this in growth groups and on Sunday mornings we're going to be going through the Gospel of Mark together. What should I be doing when I read? Well, if you're like me, a lot of times you'll read several paragraphs of the Bible and um, you'll get done reading it. You'll be like, what did I just read? That was, I read some words, sentences, some impronounceable names. I feel like I've gotten nothing from this. Um, that happens on occasion. Once you've gotten done reading, Mark's a little different because it's mostly stories, and so you, it's not as intimidating as like if you started in Lamentations or Numbers, or you know, it, there, there's some tougher books out there. What I would encourage you to do, I, I teach people the TAN method, T-A-N, then, always, now. Once you've read through the couple paragraphs for the day, go back to maybe a sentence or a verse or a couple sentences that kind of jumped out at you that you want to think about some more and you just ask three questions. What did it mean then? What does this mean always regardless of time? And then the last question is what does this mean to me right now? It starts you off by thinking through what it meant to the people. It wasn't written to me in the 21st century. It was written to somebody a long time ago. And you're going to set yourself up for a train wreck if you read the Bible and skip right to what does it mean right now. Okay, just simple questions. What did this mean back then? It will help you understand. Like when you read what John the Baptist was wearing, you're like, he must have been a really strange dude that was just, just an oddball. Well, kind of, but that's, it, he wasn't as strange by fashion and diet to the people back in the day. He was, they're like, well, he's a holy man preaching in the wilderness. This is what he should be wearing. Okay, so it helps you then. What does this passage tell me always? In other words, what's true Always, whether I, re- whether I read this now, 2,000 years from now, or somebody who read it, what's always true? There's only a few things that exist outside of time, God being, you know, predominantly. What does this passage tell me about God? Because if it's true, it's always true. Because God's not changing. He doesn't need to improve, and he'll never decline. He doesn't need to change. And then last, you say, what does it mean to me today? So I want to help you read together through that. So we're going to read together. We're going to pray together for 21 days, 14 days. I'm asking you to join with your church family and all I'm asking you to do is pray that this church is more aware of God's concrete presence specifically when we come together to worship on Sundays. Okay, I want to narrow it down. That our church is more aware of God's presence when we're together. Okay, that's what I want you to pray with me about this year. Okay, pretty open-ended prayer, but I want you to be praying with me about that for these next 14 days. Add in whatever else you want, but that's what we're praying for together. And then fasting. Now, uh, some of you have begun this already. A fast is something the Bible encourages us to do. It's where you give up something for something. Okay? You give up, giving up something to lose weight is called a diet, right? You know, that, that's not fasting. But we're encouraging you to at least include something dietary in that, something that will be a challenge for you. Like I've said, I hate onions. I prove it because I don't eat them. So for me to fast from onions is not a challenge to my flesh. It's a joy to my soul. What I'm fasting is I'm fasting 23 hours a day for the 21 days, and in that one, and in that one hour I'm allowed to eat, I'm eating basic, I'm eating like a basically like no sugar, no carb, just all natural, and I'm not gorging, I'm like, it's not like the, 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 the hour hand starts and like I open the pantry and it's like cookie monster going, it's like stuff just throwing food at my face with open mouth and crumbs going off, that's not what it looks like. I, I originally kind of thought, I was like, I've never done this before, but I bet this will be 
easier for me than when I just did the Daniel fast or where I just did, this has been the hardest thing because you know what I'm finding out? There's all kinds of different things I've been treating with food. Like when I, apparently when I feel any level of stress or anxiety, my first thought is let me go get something to eat. And I've not been going to that. So I'm like, this is, it's almost troubling. I'm like, I have been masking all kinds of stuff with food. So um, letting you into that part of my world, you may not want to try that if you're not ready for that type of eye-opening thing. But it's taught me a whole new level of dependence upon God and uh, bottled water and apparently, and sometimes coffee. But it is a very, very, very uh, healthy, intimate way for you to get connected to God. The other thing is I found like a whole bunch of like creativity that has been blocked up in my mind has been completely like open back up again, like dreams and things like that, really cool stuff. So encourage you to join in that with that with us. I'd love for you to join in all three in whatever fashion you can get involved with. If that's just way too intimidating and you're an all or nothing person, pick two of the three, one of the three. I would love to have all of us on board with all three. I don't want you to feel guilty if you can't. If for medical reasons you can't fast, the Bible says don't do it. The point isn't to show God how much you can make yourself suffer, okay? It's not not the point of fasting. It's not to like a hunger strike with God. Like I'm not eating until you give me the, you know, whatever, whatever. That's not what fasting is. It's an opportunity for you to draw closer to Jesus, break your body for, you know, to reset and detoxify your body, mind, spirit. Um, so that's what I'm asking you to do. I, I don't, I thought I had grabbed the card to show you, but I grabbed the offering envelope and this is where I was supposed to lead you all through filling something out. And I'm not going to lead you corporately all through filling out the offering envelope. I think cults do that. We're not going to do that. Um, 21 days together. This is this high, this, this card that we're collecting this morning. Collecting, you're making me nervous. You can hand people up and no, I just want to invite you. First of all, relax. Is there a spot on here where you have to write your name and your email and your phone number? No. Okay? You can if you want. You don't have to. We want to be able to do this together. So on your way out today, or even now, or you might have already done this, if you're going to participate in this on the fasting portion, just take that little card that's in your bulletin, fill in, what am I fasting from and what am I fasting for? whatever that that is. And then on your way out today, you'll see this really cool display that Havila put together that you can like clip this to the display. It'll be something for us, especially your pastors and your, and your team that serves you. you. We can be praying over all these specific things that you can feel some prayer support because uh, I don't know about you, but about halfway through the fast, it's like <laughs> days are nights and nights are days and you know, you're start, your body's starting to recalibrate to these things. We wanna pray for some strength to get through it. We also wanna rally with you around what you're hoping for God to do in your life. So fill these out. Um, here's, here's a, some advice. If you've not even thought about fasting and, the, and you're in this moment right now, it might not be, a fast is not something you want to, unless it's an emergency, you may not want to just jump into without like giving some thought to it, okay? Um, it's okay to take this card with you and like once you've got some clarity about what you want to do and you know, if, and you've thought about the, the physical and maybe the financial cost of your fast, to enter into it thoughtfully, and if you don't feel like you have enough time this morning to really think this through and pray this through, then hold on to it. You can hop in. It's customizable. Ten days together, eight days together, okay? Let's, let's try and do more than one day together, but, you know, let's, let's be together in this. We've done this every year that I've been your pastor, and every year I can trace back answered prayers. This. In my office, I have the paper I filled out at my church in Georgia in 2010 where I asked God, you know, what I was believing for for that particular calendar year going into 2011 was, you know, I, this is kind of like our last run at being parents. And that year, I still have it. And that year, we got pregnant with Chase. And I mean, it had been a long, I mean, it had been like 12 years or 13 years of 
trying and infertility and everything else. So, I mean, it's, it's an important time. God hears us when we pray. And so I want to invite you to join me with that. Worship team, will you come? Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we absolutely love you. We adore you. I do thank you that there has been progress in our country in the last few decades in matters of inequality and racial division. I thank you for servants like not only Dr. King, but so many others who courageously and bravely fought and taught in many ways like John the Baptist preaching what to some was a very threatening and unpopular message, even to the point where it cost many, if not all of them, physically, financially, emotionally, relationally, because they were convinced in their heart that it was true and that it was right. And they were willing to put their names out there and put their lives on the line to try and move us closer towards the environment and the culture and the society that you know that we can be. We thank you for that progress, but I humbly ask you, as somebody who used decide, you have decided to place me at this point in history in this geographical location where you continue to teach us and lead us and show us how we as your children can continue to champion causes that are close to your heart and not give up before the work is complete. Lord, I do pray over my church family this morning, God, that we would be those who are tuned to your presence, that we live with a sense of wonder and heightened awareness that you are everywhere and everything all the time. I do pray for any who would be listening to this, uh, this message online or who are here in our physical presence, anybody who doesn't know you, who has not made a decision to surrender control of their life to the Messiah, to the promised one, to the King of Kings. Lord, that in this moment, you would make a clear invitation to them that you would dissolve their fear and their apprehension, show them their need of a Savior. Let them taste of your grace and of your mercy and of absolute, complete forgiveness that you have offered to everybody. That is the good news Mark was talking about, that Jesus, through your life, through your death, and through your resurrection, has made forgiveness and salvation available to everybody, great and small. And friend, if you're here and you need to make a decision to give control of your life to Jesus today, here's the prayer you pray. Jesus, I admit that I'm a sinner. I believe you're God's son, that you lived a sinless life. I believe you died on the cross in my place as my substitute, and I believe you rose from the dead and you're alive today, and I choose you as my Lord. I give control of my life to you. I'm not running things anymore. I step off of the throne of my life and I ask you, please take that place. Thank you for forgiving me. Thank you for saving me. I'll follow you. And everybody said, amen.